Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 186th episode of The Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. Friends call me JAG. I'm the CEO of The Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the literature and philosophy of Ayn Rand in fun, creative ways, graphic novels, animated videos, even AI animated videos now, uh, and music, don't forget. Today we are joined by Liel Leibovitz. Before I even begin to introduce our guest, I want to remind all of you uh, joining us on Zoom, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, you can use the comment section to type in your questions and we will get to as many of them as we can. Uh, Liel Leibovitz is editor-at-large for Tablet Magazine, where he hosts its weekly culture podcast, Unorthodox, Sounds a little bit familiar to those of us at the Atlas Society um, and daily Talmud podcast, Take One. He is the editor of the book Zionism, the Tablet Guide, and the author of several books, including The Chosen People, A Broken Hallelujah, and How the Talmud Can Change Your Life. Liel, thanks for joining us. What a pleasure to be here. So um, we usually start off with our guest's origin story, and you have uh, one of the most intriguing ones so far. Tell us a bit about your unusual upbringing, uh, your relationship with your father in particular, and how that experience changed the way that you approach fatherhood. Yeah, I mean, uh, I object to one of the most intriguing. I, I hope to convince you, uh, you know, that I'm, I'm taking the cake here. So uh, I, I was born in a suburb of Tel Aviv um, in Israel to this very, very wealthy family, which was an abnormality in what was still then a socialist country. Uh, and my father, who is this kind of, you know, uh, burly, big playboy type of dude, uh, never really held a job a day in his life. Uh, basically spent his days shooting guns, riding motorcycles, uh, having affairs with women and doing everything that a self-respecting, uh, you know, playboy would do. Uh, and then one day his father, you know, we've all seen this, uh, this soap opera, summoned him to his office uh, on the 36th floor of some office building and said, son, I don't care what you do with your life, but you have to do something, follow your passion, you know, exert yourself. And my father thought that was a ridiculously unfair statement. Uh, and so he wanted to show his dad that he too was a man in full. And so he followed his heart and his heart led him to robbing banks because he had uh, watched a lot of Steve McQueen movies uh, and thought it was awfully romantic to be this kind of, you know, daredevil bandit. He would ride his motorcycle up to a bank. He would run in and in 45 seconds or less, he would rob the bank. Uh, and then he would ride around the corner onto a ramp he had custom built into a van where he would stop and ponder the sort of seminal question uh, of bank robbing, which is where is the last place you would ever look for a bank robber? And now is a good time for anyone listening to us who's contemplating this particular career to, to stop and, and pay close attention because the answer, of course, is the bank. And so my father would take off his helmet. He would uh, tug the gun into his pants and cover it with a shirt and walk very calmly back to the bank which at that point was, of course, a crime scene teeming with police officers who were busy setting up roadblocks, you know, five miles down the road for this guy who's probably trying to make a getaway. Uh, and my father very kind of timidly in a very coy voice said, excuse me, but can I please just deposit this money? My wife would be so angry if I didn't. And the police officer would say, OK, well, you know, be quick about it. And he would take the money he had just robbed three minutes earlier. This is the 80s, before computers or anything like that, making it, depositing right back into the circulation and making it virtually untraceable. So this goes on for a year and a half. And the entire country, which is still then a very small, small nation with precisely one television station, uh, one television channel, is obsessed with this mythical bank robber. Uh, no one knows uh, his real identity. So everyone calls him the motorcycle bandit. And everyone thinks the motorcycle bandit's the biggest hero in the world because never heard a guy, never heard a person, uh, hardly ever fired his gun. And is just this kind of like daredevil mystery man who's in and out of the bank. And so I was 13 at the time. So obviously uh, my kind of young adult uh, boyhood imagination was sparked by this figure. Uh, and I idolized that guy. Uh, I dressed up as him 
in the Jewish version of, of Halloween and thought this is like kind of greatest guy to emulate uh, until one day when I uh, came home uh, alone to, to a, a knock on the door and three police officers informing me that my life had changed forever. <laughs> because your father was the motorcycle bandit. And thus began a whole new chapter, uh, you know, with 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 a with a lengthy incarceration, and also me having to kind of come to terms with a lot of of the way I was raised, because he raised me. Uh, I'm his only son, his only child, his only boy, um, and he raised me with this firm belief that the most important thing in the world is for his boy to grow up and be a real man. Um, I shot my first firearm when I was about four and a half years old. He had a, a magnum, which if you're familiar with this weapon, that, that is yeah, not it's like a, as big as a child's arm, but not not a child appropriate firearm. Um, and so we would go out shooting. We would go out throwing knives, you know, driving Jeeps. About once a week, I had to go and change the tire on the car because it was very important that the man knows how to change a tire. Uh, he would just do all kinds of like, you know, feats of strength. And I grew up thinking, you know, that was what a man was. A man was someone who just exuded this sort of hurrah, muscular, masculine energy. Um, and his arrest kind of shattered all that because here he was, the the alleged protector, you know, the person who was supposed to keep me from harm, the person who was supposed to take care of me, which obviously kind of came with a, with a purview of masculinity uh and and he was locked away in 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 prison for you know 20 years uh and so it kind of led me to start and kind of think my way through okay so what does this actually mean uh which is a which is a question i'm still busy contemplating yes and um putting into practice with with your own sons okay so you you kind of have this traumatic experience what you thought was true turned out not to be true. You had to reevaluate uh, your way of looking at the world, the way of thinking about the world, the way of thinking about yourself. Um, and I understand that somewhere along the journey, you discovered Ayn Rand. So tell us a little bit about how that turned out. Um, it, it came about because God, in, in who I firmly believe, uh, has an incredible sense of humor. Uh, I was always obsessed with America. You know, growing up in Israel, uh, the, the great good uh, place for me was this magical, as, as we say in Yiddish, the golden Medina, this, this golden country across the seas. Uh, I had visited it as a boy a few times and, and loved everything about it, but never really felt that I got it or really understood anything spiritual about it. I kind of, you know, knew I liked comic books and candy and TV, but that, yeah, you know, that doesn't really cut it. I needed something more. Um, and so I, I, I learned English. I really enjoyed this language. I learned from comic books and TV and, and really wanted more and more and more. And so at some point I decided exclusively, um, I'm only going to read in English. This is it. I'm, I'm going to make this my language. And I'm going to conquer it. And so I went to uh, my school's librarian, this is middle school, and I said, hello, I wish to now only read in English. And she's like, that's your prerogative, except for we don't have any books in English. It's like, really? It's like, well, we have this section. It's like five books. It was literally five books that like American and, and British and Canadian immigrants to Israel donated to the school. And they put them on some like, you know, miscellaneous shelf right next to the books that were like so badly torn that they couldn't even be used anymore. And so I looked at them and most of them were just like, you know, the picture books for kids and things that didn't appeal to me. And there was one handsome paperback on the shelf, precisely one. Can you guess which one? Atlas Shrugged? The Fountainhead. <laughs> <laughs> and I took it. I was like, okay, this seems like a, a mountain for me to, uh, to kind of cross. Yes. And here's the thing. I mean, from, I, I remember this so clearly. I had this this is again the 80s. So I had this sort of like denim covered beanbag and I sort of like went home and so excited. It's my first English book. I'm going to read a good book. <laughs> and I, I kind of, you know, lay into it and I started reading and something made sense to me right away, which of course I couldn't at, at the time uh, define, it took a very long time to sort of grow into it. But there was something wonderful because her sensibility uh, was so profoundly the sensibility 
of of a Jewish immigrant to America, <laughs> of someone who who had seen enough of the world to know the great promise uh, of of this amazing nation, uh, the great promise of freedom and liberty and individual capacity, the great promise of breaking away from collectivism and you know totalitarianism and all the other you know corrosive isms, uh, and that just felt so wonderfully liberating and so free to me and and really deeply strengthened my resolve not only to continue and, and find all the other Ayn Rand books and read them, which took some doing in a country which still at that time didn't have, I think it had one like English language bookstores. Everything had to be ordered and delivered. It was like, you know, Christmas, the day that the thing arrived in mail. Um, but also eventually to, uh, to to move to this to this amazing uh, country and, and, and try my own journey. Great. Well, um, we, you know, as I was mentioning before in reading your book about the Talmud and about the Talmudic process, and even though, you know, it's a religious project, uh, it's still very philosophical. And I thought that there was something that even objectivists can can learn from that in terms of how to engage in uh, debate productively, um, rather than, you know, shunning people with, with a different perspective on, if not a sacred text, then a very, very important um, and, and deeply spiritual text, of course. So I mean, we're look, gonna get I, to that. Yeah. Um, and we're also gonna take audience questions. So guys, if you're out there, uh, go ahead. You can start typing um, in your questions. We'll try to get to as many of them as we can. So, but first I wanna talk about Tablet Magazine. What first brought it to my attention was uh, Jacob Siegel's monumentally important piece, A Guide to Understanding the Hoax of the Century, 13 Ways of Looking at Disinformation. I can't tell you how many times I read it. In fact, it was that piece that inspired our Draw My Life video, My Name is Disinformation. So hat tip to Tablet for that. Uh, and as I explored further, I realized that Tablet has been on the front lines of, uh, lines of reporting on anti-Semitism in unique ways. So for those viewers who aren't familiar with Tablet yet, maybe tell us a little bit about the magazine, its genesis, its focus. Tablet uh, is the uh, world's premier uh, Jewish publications of, of arts, culture, politics, and ideas. We were founded about 14 years ago uh, by my dear friend and our editor-in-chief, Alana Newhouse. Uh, at the time of our founding, the world uh, was still seemingly uh, in order uh, and, and and revolving on its axis. And so we believed that we would be a smallish, puckish publication that would be everyone's favorite third or fourth read after you were done with the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Atlantic and the New Yorker. You could read, you know, a nice little publication and actually have a, a kind of a little viewpoint on, on, on the Jewish perspective on the world. Um, we soon found ourselves uh, understanding that we're looking at a kind of cataclysmic uh, moment in time. Alana wrote a beautiful, beautiful essay that I, I dearly and deeply recommend called Everything is Broken, in which she posited uh, something that I think a lot of us, uh, definitely a lot of us who, who listen to this podcast, understand intuitively, which is, as the headline suggests, Everything about life today seems to be broken, uh, whether you visit your doctor or uh, take a flight or, you know, watch the Emmys or engage in any realm and factor of American life. It seems like things are crashing, falling apart, uh, very different than what they used to be just 10, 15 years ago. Uh, and we started realizing that none of this was uh, accidental, that all of this uh, was was the work of a concerted effort to uh, transform America into something that it was never designed to be, something uh, very totalitarian, something very uh, all-inclusive, like a big Borg-type uh, entity that consumes media and culture and, uh, you know, corporate America and politics into just one seamless identity. And, and here's the thing about us. We're not conservative. We're not liberal. We're not, you know, uh, left or right. We're Jews, and Jews have always, from from Abraham to uh, Moses to Joey Ramon, have always been outsiders. We're the ones like, look, guys, we're we're just like weirdos standing on the sidelines doing our own thing, as as all these other isms 
wash all around us. And so we started reporting on things uh, in a way that didn't seem to us very controversial. Like we started receiving a lot of uh, indications that the Women's March, which was at that point, you know, like o- almost like a like a national, you know, hallowed right. uh, stately institution. And, and you guys institution. wrote about it. Yeah. Tell, but, tell but hold on, but we, but we didn't want to write about it. So we're receiving all this information that there was like deep-seated, you know, rooted anti-Semitism in this movement that Jewish women felt like they were targeted and excluded. And so here's what we did. Honestly, we tried to get other publications to write the story because we didn't feel it should be, you know, the Jews being like, excuse me, but there is anti-Semitism in the women's march. Like we wanted this to be like a big kind of, New York Times front page story. And and back then, to our great big shock and surprise, nobody would touch it uh, because it didn't fit this kind of prevalent narrative of like, no, this is the one truth. You know, who are you going to believe, me or your own lying eyes type of situation? And so we reported this piece uh, and all hell broke loose. We had substantial evidence and in interviews with so many people who said that Linda Sarsour and others at the helm of the women's march movement were were really discriminatory uh, and and biased in in horrendous ways. And then, of course, the New York Times runs the same story, not crediting us, but saying, "Oh, of course, well, we knew all along." Uh, and so, increasingly, it became really clear to us that our our job right now, uh, our mandate, if you will, has become very different, <laughs> very bigger, uh, very kind of uh, much more audacious. This was as clear as it could be during COVID. Uh, when we were writing, you know, such uh, such really incendiary pieces as suggesting that this might have been caused by a lab leak or questioning the orthodoxy of the mask mandate madness, which at the time got us everything from, you know, quasi bans to accusations of, you know, fascism and grandma killing. Uh, and it just sort of seemed so weird until we realized what was going on and that our responsibility was just to do, you know, what, what journalists uh, and, and Jews have always done, which is just just do your best to be truthful. So um, I'm wondering if you've been having any of these kinds of conversations, the kind that I had over the past uh, holiday with family. I'm the only uh you know, Republican, non-progressive, for lack of a better word, in my family. And it's been interesting to kind of, you know, eavesdrop on, on some of these conversations, how shocked people are. They they can't believe that, you know, the uh, group that's judging their, their um, you know, PhD thesis is has become so extreme or that they can't believe that they have friends that are, you know, um, very sympathetic to uh, these Palestinian, pro-Palestinian, pro-Hamas rallies. Um, But I'm assuming you, having been following this, are not surprised or have you been surprised? And what kind of conversations are you having? Oh my lord, I am so not surprised. It's it's surprising how uh, not surprised I am. So, um, I already told you I'm, I'm I'm an immigrant to this country. The day uh, after I arrived, I arrived on a Thursday night uh, in 1999. On Friday morning, I took the subway and uh, and went to stand at the gates of Columbia University. Uh, and just like your cliched, stereotypical, you know, immigrant, almost like Fievel from you know an American Tale, I stood there and I said, "One day I will attend this school." And then I'll get my PhD here, and then I'll teach here, and then I'll be a, an important American writer who writes books with great publishers and publishes in the New York Times and gets invited to cocktail parties. And then something terrible happened. It all came true. And for about 11, 12 years, this was my life. I got my PhD at Columbia. I taught first at Barnard and then at NYU for eight or nine years. Uh, I you know, wrote books for all these publishers, uh, contributed to all these publications, and, and kind of got a front row seat to just how deep the rot, uh, intellectual, uh, moral rot, uh, was in these institutions. And so, but seven years ago, I, I wrote a piece called Get Out, which basically argued that uh, Jews in, in, in particular, but you know, right-thinking Americans in general, 
have no business going to college because because college was lost to us. It was no longer the institution. It had been this kind of a great machinery of social, emotional, intellectual promotion, but rather this kind of weird cesspool of mutually accrediting mediocrities where you spend four years and a quarter of a million dollars for someone to turn your son and daughter into a Nazi. Um, and when I wrote this, people, including, you know, very good friends said, you know, you've lost your God darn mind. Like this is, this is like, what, what are you telling people not to go to college? Like, this is crazy. Of course you have to go to college. There's literally no life except for through Princeton, Harvard, Columbia, Yale. Uh, and, a bunch of university presidents also, you know, contacted me to say, oh, you're entirely wrong. And I said, great. Could you actually show me the path to how we redeem these institutions from all these systemic problems that you admit that they have? And of course, every one of them said, well, you can't. Uh, and so this week uh, or this these last few months, I should say, watching these institutions uh, reveal the full splendor uh, of, of their corruption watching uh, the presidents of, of two of these institutions have to step down in, in shame uh, and watching so many, you know, normies look at this, at this storm and say, oh my Lord, like we had no idea, uh, feels at once a little bit kind of, you know, strange to me because there's a big kind of tendency to say, uh, uh, told you so. But also <laughs> if we're being more honest and, and, and more generous, um, a tremendous sense of joy because I really think that this is a beginning of a, of a real kind of, to use a, a perfect American term, great awakening uh, of, mm -hmm. of, a, of a realignment, which transcends these old and useless categories of I'm a Republican. No, I'm a Democrat. I'm progressive. I'm conservative. We're looking at something completely new. Uh, and we're looking at something that I think is, is inspiring and encouraging Americans to sort of, wake up and, and understand that there are real perils here and real priorities and, and amazing opportunities for, for yet another, you know, uh, yet another iteration of, of the great American covenant. All right. We're going to get to some audience questions, but before we do that, one of your earlier publications uh, that I just don't want to gloss over because it was such a gem was conspiracy of letters. Um, I listened to it on Audible. It's, it's less than you know an hour and a half. Listen, it's a short history of the conspiracy to frame Alfred Dreyfus, Jewish officer in the French army, which draws on uh, newly discussed research um, and uh, also. Uh, while laymen tend to associate that scandal with Emile Zola, you emphasize the role uh, of an arguably greater French literary figure, uh, Marcel Proust. And one of the quotes that really caught my attention was that of Alfred Naquet when he described anti-Semitism as, quote, a highly adaptive force, acutely sensitive to the tremors of culture and ideology. So applying that perspective to the current plague of anti-Semitism, what tremors of culture and ideology do you see driving its spread? This is such an amazing question <clears throat> that could really, uh, could and should occupy us for days and end. Uh, the, the first thing I think that's really important to understand before we even begin to address it is that anti-Semitism really actually has nothing to do with the Jews. Uh, it is it is a mind virus and a brain rot that, that affects people completely independently from the presence uh, and definitely actions uh, of, of any real Jewish people. And, and the thing that usually makes it so, uh, so forceful uh, and so incredibly powerful is that it, it builds up uh, its opposition to the Jews because in, in essence, uh, it is at every new iteration uh, just another take on a very old idea. Uh, and it's an idea that you could find right there in Leviticus. Uh, it's paganism. It's this notion of living in a world that is always shifting, constantly changing, right? There's a reason why the great pagan poet Virgil uh, named his book uh, uh, Metamorphosis, uh, Ovid, sorry, named his book Metamorphosis. Uh, because to live in a pagan world uh, is to live in a world where everything is constantly shifting, constantly changing. There is no certainty. There is no anything to rely on. And therefore, you are given to all kinds of, of terrible thrusts like uh, heightened tribalism, 
that leads you to see anyone outside of your immediate circle as a danger. Child sacrifice, uh, because what else do you have to offer the angry gods but your own, you know, most cherished uh, possession? Uh, and and that has always been the the way of life uh, for those societies and those individuals who who picked up the mantle of anti-Semitism and allowed themselves to to degenerate. And the Nazis were were really uh, the best example of this. It, it is no coincidence that history's greatest anti-Semites were also history's you know most celebrated pagan. Right, those two go hand in hand. So the tremors that we're seeing right now. Uh, are very, very old tremors in, in, in new garb. The tremors of once again uh, standing uh, athwart and against the old notion of the kind of Judeo-Christian opposition to, to the pagan ideal, uh, this, this uh, way of life that the Talmud captures so well, which is inclusive and compassionate and, and moral and mindful, uh, this, these are things uh, that our enemies simply cannot stand. Theirs is literally a world in which words have no meaning, in which you know genders are fluid, in which you could decide that you know uh, while there are fifty-seven genders in opposition to anything and everything that biology teaches us, race, which is a very shady and shoddy concept, is completely you know uh, kind of fixed and 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 unnegotiable. When you see these trends and tremors uh, uh, foisted upon us by these neo-pagans, you understand just how important this fight we're having right now. And it's a fight that far transcends the state of Israel or even the Jews. Interesting. Okay. We're going to get to some questions and you don't have to answer them all. So you can always just say pass. Uh, but we've got from Instagram. I have, Zach. I have not acquired that skill. I'm sorry <laughs> to say. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, then, guys, come up with some really weird questions so we can see if he's up to the challenge. Uh, Zach Galligan asking, taking a reading on the Western world currently, do you think the world is becoming more or less free? Guess to twist on whether you're optimistic or pessimistic about the future. I am incredibly optimistic. Uh, I'm so sorry to disappoint. Look, I, I wrote a piece um, just before Thanksgiving saying that I firmly believe that the American uh, future is rosy, which seems like an insane statement to anyone following American economics, culture, politics, society, you name it. Uh, look, I, I believe that the United States of America is unique. I think only it and Israel uh, alone among all the nations of the world are covenantal nations. Uh, these are nations predicated not on social contracts, which are you know kind of bizarre arrangements in which people who are supposedly disconnected from from any you know tribal or, or emotional or familial obligations willingly sign away their rights uh, to to some imagined collective. But instead of of, of this contract, they're based on a covenant, uh, a covenant with their creator, uh, in in whom again I, I firmly believe, uh, un, unlike uh, Ayn Rand. Um, in which we are allowed and in fact encouraged to go ahead and prove in every generation anew that we deserve uh, this great big mantle of keeping the world you know, safer and freer. If you look at the history of America, if we had this conversation in 1857 right, and asked ourselves, what's the future uh, hold in store? We, we would have been very cautious to say, we're doomed, guys. You know, look at this. Uh, the debate over over free versus slave states is is heating up. There's no way we could keep this union going. It's going to some very dark places. And it did, un unless you remember that what happened after the Civil War was another renewal of the great American covenant and the ushering in of a new age of commitment to liberty to freedom, to prosperity, to individual uh, rights, uh, which is exactly what this country does about every hundred or so years. And this country continues to inspire, even when it's broken, even when its leaders are far short of the task that, that history has set for them, continues to inspire the rest of the world. And you see these ideas percolating everywhere. You may open the New York Times and hear that these nations struggling to be freer uh, are totalitarian or fascistic. Oh my God, look at Viktor Orban and look at the elections in Argentina. These are dangerous populists. But what you're seeing are people yearning to breathe free. 
and and we're we're getting there there's going to be a lot of tumult a lot of turbulence in in the near term but i think in the long run uh i believe we're looking at another renewal of the covenant another golden era of of human liberty and flourishing yes and i would also say to to those who are you know disturbed by uh these populist uh victories although i you know, I think there's elements of Malay that, that are populist, but um, it's not just railing at any old power, right? He's he's railing at uh, governmental power in particular, any kind of crony um, collaboration. So, uh, you know, but if you are of that mindset, that, that uh, you know, MAGA or Brexit and these kinds of things disturb you, I think that being open to having conversations about various grievances, the level of immigration, um, issues like transgenderism, being willing to meet people with different views about these issues, not to suppress or demonize or marginalize them, uh, would just look at it as a safety gap, right? Because the more you marginalize or, you know, deplatform somebody, they don't magically change their minds. They just become more radicalized and more eager to find a, a strong sure. man who, you know, stick it to the establishment. So, and plus, right. look, there's, there's, there's kind of a wonderful, uh, dare I say, objectivist uh, strand in, in all these, you know, victories around the world, because they're simply reiterating the question of what are our national interest what's good for us and the fact mm. that just asking this question i'm sorry what's good for america what's america's interest what's hungary's interest has become some sort of heresy because you're supposed to immediately succumb to like oh no we must sign the global you know environmental accord even though it makes absolutely no sense and is ruinous to our economy and is absolutely you know uh, ill-fitted to achieve even its own modest goals um the fact that you can't even have this conversation shows you that all these parties that you're seeing all over the world are, are great thrusts at freedom. Yes. And because, um, you know, politics is downstream but cult from culture, but culture is downstream from philosophy, the way to fight these collectivist uh, policies and mandates is to start by making the case for individualism and self-interest as opposed to self-sacrifice and altruism, because uh, that's what, you know, particularly some of these environmental commitments are um, at their I mean, core. I would say, okay. I would say religion, but we could argue about that some other time. <laughs> okay. Um, Alex turning on Instagram asks, isn't it true that many leading socialists were Jewish, especially in Russia at the outset? Is there something in Judaism that makes socialism appealing? There's something, this, that's an amazing question. Um, there is something in Judaism that makes utopia appealing uh, because the ultimate goal, uh, and, and this uh, phrase has been criminally abused by by the lunatic left for years uh but there is a principle in judaism called tikkun olam which is repairing this broken world uh we are cautioned to do it uh under very certain auspices uh we are cautioned to do it while asking a whole host of questions that are supposed to keep uh the 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 sort of you know the the rails from from for the train from derailing uh but if you follow the story of, of the Enlightenment and you follow the great migration of so many formerly religious people, because, you know, really the, 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 there were no or very few uh, non-religious people in the world uh, prior to a, to a certain point in our collective history, uh, you see that at some point, once the Jews were more assimilated uh, into their societies, uh, once it became possible for Jews to live outside of their very narrow uh, communities, which for centuries it was not, uh, it is easy to understand why sometimes these great yearnings, great religious yearnings uh, to bring about uh, the, 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 the perfect end of times, right, uh, would easily be translatable into uh, other means. 
Sometimes those means were socialism. That is a ruinous uh, instinct uh, that corrupts and, and rots the desire to repair the world into a, uh, into a, a fetid, feverish hellscape of oppression. Uh, sometimes uh, they were uh, science, uh, kind of yearning to find great answers and, and cure great diseases, uh, which is how we get, you know, Jonas Salk curing polio. Sometimes they were artistic, uh, you know, the desire to write the great book uh, or, or make the great movie, which is how we get Ayn Rand. Right. Well, and, you know, thinking of Ayn Rand, who was born Alyssa Rosenbaum and, and about her origin story um, in Russia at the time, you know, they lived in St. Petersburg because uh, that was one of the places where Jews were allowed to live. Her father was a pharmacist because that's one of the um professions Jews were allowed to have, and they, they were quite fortunate. I mean, the, the history of Russia under the Tsar and all of these extremely bloody pogroms and the uh, amount of oppression that Jews suffered there, I think that also helps to provide a context for why um, people, you know, recognized, uh, even, you know, Ayn Rand's family recognized that this was not working, that this was a very oppressive situation. And open to uh, contemplating other ways of governance. And of course, that was a very popular uh, thread that was being talked about all over the world, um, including in the United States, you know, with Frederick Douglass famously rejecting socialism at the time as slavery of all to all. So these were in, in the- Hallelujah. <laughs> okay, uh, one more, then I'm going to go back to some of my questions. Uh, all right. My modern Gaul accusations that someone is a Nazi has made the term lose all its meaning. Do you think the term anti-Semitism is going down the same path in how often it is used? Oh, ab I ab absolutely. Uh, I, 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 here's, here's, here's what I'm seeing. And, and, and it is very uh, distasteful and, and distressing to me. Uh, I am definitely seeing a tendency to use accusations of anti-Semitism and Jew hating uh, as as a political lever uh, to to sort of control and redefine the situation. Uh, as soon as Elon Musk bought Twitter, Elon Musk became the world's leading anti-Semite. These uh, the, the world's leading anti-Semite. Uh, these critics had nothing to say when the you know Ayatollah of uh, of Iran Khamenei. Uh, repeatedly called for the destruction of the world's only Jewish state and for the mass murder of Jews and, and for Holocaust denial. But when someone on the perceived right comes and, you know, takes charge of, of Twitter and opens it up to actual free speech and expression, all of a sudden that person has to be painted as an anti-Semite. Uh, I'm very sad to say that the nation's premier organization uh, to prevent such uh, misuse of the term, uh, the Anti-Defamation League, which for uh, about 100 years was a great, venerable uh, anti-hate group that simply monitored attack against Jews uh, and, and other minorities, uh, has been captured. Uh, it is run by a former Obama White House operative that has completely weaponized the discussion of anti-Semitism uh, for political means. The organization now repeatedly only publishes reports about anti-Semitism in America that mentioned, you know, the supposed dangerous right-wing uh, uh, lunatics. Uh, nothing to say about uh, members of Congress like Ilhan Omar or Rashida Tlaib or, or other people in academia and culture who are blatantly, rapidly anti-Semitic. Uh, I think that's a that's a despicable situation. Uh, and just another reminder uh, of of how um, dire consequences could be uh, when we when we misappropriate terms uh, and and use them as political batting rods. Absolutely, and that's another phenomenon that Ayn Rand takes aim at in her novella Anthem. You know, where the word "I" has been abolished, and the the uh, attempt to control the politically correct words that we're supposed to use in any given situation is really at root a, an attempt to control the way we think. So um, 
Tell us about your podcast, Unorthodox, 6 million downloads. Maybe that's even out of date, um, consistently ranks among critics' list of podcasts to follow. So uh, tell us a bit about it. Maybe any favorite episodes you've done so far. You know, I I could tell you uh, that that I am a um, a world class expert on podcasting because I have made every imaginable mistake uh, in this field. There is literally not a blunder that I have not committed in the eight uh, and a half years we've been we've been broadcasting. Uh, when my friend and, and former colleague Mark Oppenheimer approached me and Stephanie Butnick, my co-host. To do the show, uh, I my first instinct was to politely decline because I thought back then, this is eight and a half years ago, uh, that podcasts were very stupid. I did not understand why anyone would want to listen to someone blathering on, that we had perfectly fine way of, of you know communicating ideas uh, in, in kind of oral form. That was called radio. And if you were good enough, you got on one of these stations. And if you weren't, what's the point of this whole thing? Uh, what I didn't understand uh, is, and, and again, learned very slowly uh, and resolutely, is the incredible power, the intimacy that this medium has. Because unlike radio, which, you know, you listen to in the car or whenever, you listen to podcasts when you do things like, you know, walk your dog or, you know, make dinner for your kids or wait in the carpool lane. Uh, it is there with you in your ear and in your brain at your kind of most vulnerable uh, moments. And therefore you really form real emotional connections with with the shows and with the hosts. And, and we soon figured out, uh, again, to our surprise, uh, initially to our delight and, and later on to our to our horror, because we realized the responsibility that, that it entailed, that a lot of our listeners uh, were people who would traditionally find their home and their community in synagogues, in Jewish community centers, in Jewish communal organizations, uh, and for a whole host of reasons, way too complicated to get to uh, right now, uh, felt kind of abandoned by by Jewish institutional life and, and really desperately wanted a way to connect with the tradition, to connect with the faith, and to connect with other Jews, and found it in a podcast, found it in something that felt so familiar. And, and and even more importantly, found it in a podcast that made its mission um, kind of almost sanctifying dissent. You know, there's, there's a notion in the Talmud of machloket l'shem shamayim, a disagreement for the sake of heaven. The idea that not only are you not to quash dissent and disagreement, but, but you're, you're supposed to really revel in it because that's what makes you sharper and stronger. And that's what friends are supposed to do for each other. You're supposed to traditionally only learn Talmud with a chavruta, which is one person who ideally is kind of a frenemy, someone who is your intellectual and emotional equal, but who disagrees with you about a lot of other things. So my co-hosts uh, and myself, Stephanie Butnick and uh, Joshua Molina, uh, could not be more different in our political, ideological, philosophical, religious experiences, upbringings, uh, and and worldviews. And yet for us to sit there week after week, talk about really fiery, you know, kind of incandescent things and do so in a way that's loving, that's open, that's respectful, that's humorous, that doesn't, you know, immediately go for this like, oh, well, I'm not talking to you if you believe that Donald Trump is da-da-da-da. But rather say like, oh, interesting. You think that's right? Tell me why. Oh, I think that's ridiculous. Let me tell you why I think it's ridiculous. Uh, I think for our listeners to to hear a little bit of this um, of this emotionally, spiritually calming voice that doesn't you know paper over differences, but celebrates them, but does so in a loving way and a funny way. I, I think that's a lot. Well, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because um, you also have, of course, another podcast, Take One Talmud to Go, and you're the author of How the Talmud Can Change Your Life, Surprisingly Modern Advice from a Very Old Book. And, you know, as you might imagine, as an objectivist, I'm I'm not religious. I, I mean, I go to... Uh, I stay engaged with the cultural Jewish life, but I'm an atheist. 
Um, so I was like, oh, I'm not sure how I was going to feel about this book about the Talmud, but I, it was a wonderful read. And by the way, a wonderful listen, because uh, Liel narr narrates it himself. And um, I really enjoyed how it wove together sort of uh, events from history or, you know, uh, talking about Billie Halliday and what her life taught us and then, you know, connecting that to um, passages of the Talmud. But my overall takeaway was how uh, the Talmudic tradition played a role in um, preventing schisms that, uh, you know, especially finding this frenemy, finding the importance of finding a companion and studying in, in pairs and debating and having that kind of um, open dialogue and exchange. Uh, I, I actually thought that, you know, maybe objectivism could learn a thing or two from that tradition because objectivism has unfortunately uh, been vulnerable to schisms. And part of it comes from this orthodox idea that uh, to talk to someone of a different point of view about objectivism, we're open objectivists. If you're a closed objectivist, you can't talk to us because you're somehow sanctioning our views. And I thought, gee, wouldn't, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could have conversations and debates, but again, do so in a way that models what's best about objectivism, which is, you know, reason and uh, benevolence and 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 freedom. So, what might? So let me, yeah, let me let me tell you one story that that I think um, I think that the 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 good folks at the Ayn Rand Society should should pay attention to because it really I think captures the the heart of everything that you so beautifully said. Uh, this is probably the most famous story in the Talmud, and it's a great lesson for objectivists, and I think for Americans in, in general these days. Um, so the story goes that a bunch of rabbis were sitting and arguing about a, a, a religious question, a question of, of Jewish law. And all the rabbis were in agreement, except for one guy, Rabbi Eliezer. And he didn't like being contradicted. He was a very learned, very smart, very passionate, and very kind of, you know, opinionated man. And so he said, okay, if I'm right, see this tree over there? Let this tree uproot itself, do a jig, run five feet you know, down the road and replant itself there. And he's not even done talking. The tree uproots itself, does a little dance, runs down the road and replants itself. Rabbi Eliezer says, see, I was right. The other rabbis say, no, nah, man, that's just a tree. A tree doesn't get to decide law. And so Rabbi Eliezer gets upset. He says, oh, yeah? Okay, well, if I'm right, let the river change the course of its flow. And he's not even done talking. The river changes the course of its flow. And he says, see, I'm right. The other rabbis say, no, man, that's a river. We don't, we don't, rivers don't get to decide the law. And so on and on and on this goes until Rabbi Eliezer can't take it anymore. And he says, guys, if I'm right, I want God himself to come out and speak from heaven and say, I'm right. And he's not even done talking. There's a voice comes out of the sky and says, Rabbi Eliezer is right. And the other rabbis look up and say, excuse me, God, but uh, maybe up in heaven, you get to decide. Down here, we call the shots. And the story concludes that a couple of days later, God uh, runs into the prophet Elijah and says with a big smile, no, I've met my children and they have bested me. Uh, I love that story so much because it shows us that at the heart of this project, at the heart of this pursuit, is not these kind of like great, big, steely dogmas that must never be, uh, you know, discussed, questions, uh, questioned, doubted, or or looked into, but rather that the project is an eminently and imminently human one. It is a project of continual discussion and disagreement. And no one who believes that they have any monopoly on truth, justice, and righteousness, even on things that are as important as the divine word, uh, is going to get very far unless they're going to do so in an environment of persuasion, uh, of dissent, of disagreement, and of endless argument and conversation. That's the Talmudic heritage, and Lord, do we need it in America right now. Agree. Well, as our founder, David Kelly, said, if we are right, we have nothing to fear. And if we are wrong, we have something to learn. 
think that yeah. would be a wonderful guide. Now, I was noticing, Amen. however, that the you published that book. Uh, its official publication date was like three days before the Hamas terrorist attacks. Is that right? I am. I have. I have a very good sense of marketing. Yeah, I'm, I'm impeccable <laughs> timing. So I guess um, question for you as someone who's studied uh, the Talmud now, and um, I also appreciate the story of how you came to it at a, a difficult time in your life. Um, this is a difficult time for many people, obviously people in Israel that um, uh, have lost loved ones or have um, their family members that are that are kidnapped and just generally uh, the shock and the horror and the grief experienced by Israelis and Jews around the world. What inspiration um, and solace might they take from the Talmud? So look, I, I think this is absolutely a, a, a very dark time, not just for Israelis and Jews, but also for Americans. I think a lot of us, uh, even those of us who are not Jewish, uh, are looking at reality now and and really are not recognizing a lot of what we're seeing. We're not recognizing in America where pro-Hamas uh, demonstrators could block airports and, 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 you know, kind of wave swastika flags and call for you know, death to the Jews uh, right out there in the open uh, on the college campus in the town square, trying to disrupt Christmas, trying to describe them, disrupt the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. And so if we look to the Talmud, uh, I think it offers us much solace. But I want to focus on one great story, because if, if nothing else, and it's uh, 2,711 pages, the Talmud does tell uh, a handful of really great stories. And so this is a story that takes place in the year 70. Um, and it is right before the Romans destroy the temple in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's under siege. The Roman armies are all kind of converged. Uh, and it is very clear to the Jews there that catastrophe is looming. And so Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who was the leading rabbi and kind of leader of his time, smuggles himself out of the city and uh, goes to see Vespasian, who's back then still just a Roman general, but very soon thereafter will become the great Roman emperor. Uh, and because Vespasian knows and respects Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, he says to the rabbi, okay, uh, I'm going to give you, just like ask me for anything. What do you want? Now, you would think that this guy would say, okay, man, could you please just not destroy the temple? Could you please call off your troops? But that would be illogical because that would basically be asking the Romans not to pursue their own objective self-interest which Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai realized was not how history and human beings work. So instead, he asks for three things. And what he asks for, I think, is a great blueprint that could give all of us right now who are wondering what's going on in the world great solace. The first thing he asks for is to take all of the sages, all of the Torah scholars, and move them from Jerusalem to a city called Yavne, a city in central Israel. Now, why is that an important insight? Because Jerusalem to Jews is more than just, you know, the capital city. Uh, it is the beating heart of the religion. It is the place that we pray for and have prayed for for millennia, three times a day for our return to this, you know, eternal capital from which, you know, we believe the entire world was, was created. Uh, it's the temple. It's the most important thing to us. And in effect, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is telling us, guys, even when an institution that you care a lot about is destroyed, life could still go on. What you're committed to aren't the institutions. What you're committed to are the ideas. Yes, Harvard University may be destroyed. Princeton might be destroyed. MIT Penn might fall. But education lives on. The New York Times might be, you know, propaganda and a rag. But journalism still lives on. That in of itself is a very profound insight. But that was just the first one. The second one is he asked the Roman emperor to spare, or the Roman general, to spare the life of this person called uh, Raban Gabriel, who was the leader of the community and basically kind of like, you know, a son of the, the, the Talmudic equivalent of the Kennedys, a very old and respected lineage of rabbis. Now, why did he do that? Because he knew that if you just took people out of the old institutions and into new institutions, they would say, Oh, I don't like the new thing. The old thing was so much better. You know, it's not the same. It's not authentic anymore. He realized, in other words, that people need tradition. Even when great change, or especially when times of great change are happening, 
you still need to be rooted in something. You still need ties to the past. You still need to feel like you're part of a greater story that extends well beyond your years, which again is another tremendous insight, but he was saving the best for last because he asked the Roman general to spare the life of his old friend, Rabbi Tzadok. And you would think to yourself, not just to spare his life, but to send a doctor to cure him because he was very sick. And you may think to yourself, that's self-indulgent. I mean, Jerusalem's under siege. Hundreds of thousands of people are going to die. And you're wasting your time and energy and your breath sending a doctor to some old guy who may soon die anyway. That makes absolutely no sense. But the lesson that he was teaching us here, I think, is very profound. The lesson he was teaching us is that, you know, so many of us wake up every morning and say, oh, my God, we have to save America. We have to save the Republican Party. We have to save the Jews. We have to save Israel. We have to save the universities. Thinking in these large, big, you know, collective sweeping terms, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is warning us against this. He's saying, your job isn't to save America. Your job is to save one old guy who needs your help. One human being, one friend, one neighbor who you could reach out and help concretely down the block or around the corner that's where you should put your energy. Not thinking in these vague, abstract terms, but thinking in real kind of emotional, cohesive, connective terms to people you actually know in your community and making the world concretely better with your actions. I think these three resolutions uh, that institutions are replaceable uh, and renewable, that um, tradition matters, and that our duty is just to you know walk each other home uh, are deeply comforting and deeply resonant today. All right. Well, we have just about four or five minutes left. So apologies, we're not going to get to a lot of the questions, um, but we did put links in the chats across uh, the platforms to Liel's various podcasts. Do you take questions on those or is it more of like you guys record it? And... Uh, we take arguments on those. <laughs> Okay. All right. Um, so, but I didn't on want to answer... I will say our, 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 we have a Gentile of the week on Unorthodox. We welcome a Gentile friend every week uh, and he gets to ask us a question uh, he or she has always wanted to know about, about the Jewish people. So we do engage. Okay, questions. Okay. Um, I didn't want to end without talking about uh, perhaps one of your most important publications, Zionism, a tablet guide. Tell us about that project and, um, why it is important today. Well, you know, Zionism is a really strange um, notion. Uh, if you kind of look at Wikipedia, it will tell you that Zionism is a 19th century movement to rebuild uh, a national homeland for the Jews in the land of Israel. Uh, under these uh, criteria, uh, Zionism has achieved its goals, uh, you know, uh, three quarters of a century ago and ought to be a completely kind of uh, irrelevant term, just like, you know, no Italian today, almost 200 years after the Risorgimento, the reunification of Italy, no Italian today would define themselves as a Garibaldist, right? After Giuseppe Garibaldi, who united Italy in, in, into one nation. Uh, why do so many uh, Israelis and so many Jews here in the United States and around the world continue to define themselves as Zionists? The answer is because Zionism was never just about the, the return of the Jewish people to our indigenous homeland uh, of, of Israel. Uh, it was also about building in this indigenous homeland a, a nation uh, that, is, that is more perfect, more exemplary, uh, and closer to the principles uh, kind of bequeathed to us uh, by our creator uh, in, in the Torah and, and in the Talmud. Uh, this idea that our work here isn't done, uh, is a tremendous engine, engine of change and growth. And by the way, a, a, an, an engine that continues to inspire not just Israelis, but Americans as well. There is a reason why an overwhelming majority uh, of Americans support and love the state of Israel, because the energy is the same energy. The understanding is the same understanding. This country's work isn't done with the founding. Every day is a new founding. Every day is a new reminder uh, that the dangers of totalitarianism, uh, of of darkness, uh, of oppression, are still very much upon us, not just all over the world, but also right here at home. And every day is a reminder that our work to perfect this place uh, is far from done. And so in this book, uh, Zionism, the, the Tablet Guide, 
we collect not only um, a host of sort of primary documents uh, by Zionism's earliest thinkers and founders, but also a lot of uh, really interesting work about how it pertains to uh, to life today, uh, including interviews with you know Shimon Peres, Israel's uh, legendary late uh, prime minister and, and later president, including meditations on Native Americans uh, and where they stand vis-a-vis uh, -vis sort of like the indigenous people of Israel. Uh, it's a really fascinating book, and I, I recommend it. Well, uh, absolutely. And in terms of that ongoing work to um, reaffirm and improve our founding, to uh, reinforce the covenant, uh, if not with a deity, but at least with the ideals that we hold about this wonderful, glorious American experiment. Uh, Liel, thanks for all of the work that you and your colleagues at uh, Tablet are doing. And thanks also for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And of course, thanks to all of you who joined us, asked those wonderful questions. Sorry we didn't get to all of them. Of course, if you enjoyed this podcast, this uh, conversation, or any of the work that we do at the Atlas Society, maybe one of your New Year's resolutions is to be more philanthropic this year. So consider making a tax-deductible donation. If you're a first-time uh, donor, your support will be matched by our board. And be sure to join us next week when longtime objectivist Andrew Bernstein returns to the Atlas Society asks to continue this conversation about various issues, but specifically about anti-Semitism uh, in light of his most recent and very timely book, American Racism, Its Decline, Its Baleful Resurgence, and Our Looming Race War. See you then.